You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week, I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor along with Romain Bostic and Joe Weisenthal. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. So it was another week with a Fed decision and another virtual one, of course, and another commitment by the central bank for rates to stay near zero for years, three years, in fact. But there wasn't much detail on the new policy framework of letting inflation run hotter than 2%. But look, whatever the case, it's all pretty darn dovish. And the question now for me really is, how will this play out in the real economy? There is uncertainty in how these actions will actually affect the real world, real people, real purchases, real jobs. And what workers is this crisis leaving behind? How can we think, I guess, more creatively about inclusion in the workforce? What are the long effects, the long-term effects? So to help us understand this tension, we spoke with Jeff Kozenek. He's Chief Investment Strategist at Fifth Third Bank, who does a lot of research on labor market impacts and also looks in particular at ex-convicts and how they get back into the working world in particular. So we started the conversation by asking him how surprised he has been by the initial progress in the US economy and what it's made in terms of digging itself out of the hole. One of our early observations was that we should expect a faster recovery because we entered this downturn without any fundamental economic imbalances. Mm. So the sort of long, drawn-out, squeezing out those imbalances and the repair from that uh, just didn't have to happen this cycle. Uh, That being said, we have to say the resiliency of the U.S. economy has been quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, and the resiliency, of course, of consumer spending. I mean, those retail sales numbers that we saw, uh, of course, back above those uh, pre-pandemic levels. But I guess the concern then, Jeff, is whether uh, some of that spending was uh, either a pull forward or whether it was just, uh, you know, all of us rushing out and buying, uh, you know, essential items that we needed for the home and whether that's going to be sustainable uh, enough to keep GDP or get GDP back on track. It was a combination of factors. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Program was helpful. The subsidy uh, to unemployment uh, insurance was incredibly supportive of spending. There's a pent-up demand impact. Uh, that's helped looking in the past. I think it's going to get a little bit more difficult. One of our concerns here is that uh, once you look at who is actually unemployed and critically how long they've been unemployed, we're going to flip a switch in here. Long-term unemployment 
defined by economists as 27 weeks or longer, is going to start soaring because people who are laid off in March and April who are not back in the labor market are suddenly going to be long-term unemployed, and there's some very negative consequences to that. And it's something we're going to be discussing after this break a little bit later, Jeff, with you about some of the inclusion that can be focused on when you look at the labor market. I'm interested in some of what is the Federal Reserve's focus in this new targeting, particularly of inflation and a more average inflation rate being looked at. Do you ever see an overshoot? Um, I, I think there's always the potential for an overshoot. It seems so far away now. Uh, it, I think the Fed quite rightly is saying that's a problem we'll address if we need to. Uh, let's talk about today. We heard the Fed uh, be a little bit more explicit about its strategy here. And they said, you know, we're going to wait for maximum employment. At one point, Chair Powell said, well, do you want to see unemployment get all the way back down to three and a half percent? And he said, yes, pretty emphatically. How much will that help the economy? Uh, the lack of uncertainty that investors just don't really have to think at all about possible rate hikes for a long time until basically we're there. I think it's a big positive. Um, that being said, I'm not as confident that the Fed will be able to get to that level. Hmm. Uh, if you look at it, you know, that, that below 4% unemployment is the exception rather than the rule. Does it, but the, Jeff, I mean, the, the concern here, though, I mean, whether they get to that employment level, whether they get to that inflation level independent of one another is one thing. The idea that they sort of link these two uh, in tandem and that the market is now expecting that any sort of move upward in rates is going to have to be confirmed by both of these things in tandem. Does that give you a little bit of worry about the flexibility that the Fed may or may not have down the road? I think it's actually a positive. Uh, we're basically pretty favorable on this policy. If you look back at what businesses on the ground were doing uh, back in the in the fall, they were starting to uh, change their up their investment in capital goods to uh, deal with the limited labor force. They were starting to reach deeper into the labor pool. Some of those uh, items that the uh, uh, towards a more inclusive economy. And that's actually not just a social good, but actually an economic good. If we can grow our labor force participation rate, we can grow our economy faster. And talking about participation rate, we're going to be discussing much more with you about how we can see perhaps a second chance hiring really helping the outcomes at the moment, looking mm. at felons in particular. But away from the area of though that part of the labor market. Just talk to us about how surprised or not you've been about Chair Powell really talking to this inclusive nature in the labor market, looking to ensure that, well, just paying lip service to the fact that they see the racial divide that's building in unemployment. They see the gender divide and they're looking to try and push government that way, but also realize what monetary policy has to do with it. As you mentioned earlier, uh, Caroline, it was very striking in conference, not only in Fed Chair Powell's remarks, but two of the reporters later on asked uh, uh, questions in, in that arena. Some of this perhaps is defense. Uh, last month, uh, Democrats in the House put forward a piece of legislation, the Federal Reserve uh, Racial and Economic Opportunity Act, that would add this as a third mandate to the Fed. And I think the Fed probably doesn't want to have that uh, that. Uh, constriction on their policymaking. But uh, my experience with the business community, the policymaking community is uh, this is something we all get. And as Americans, we want our country truly to be a land of opportunity across racial boundaries, across other boundaries. Uh, uh, and this is something that many of us believe in very, very deeply. And I would say that's part of Fed Powell's uh, 
operating uh, system as well. One of the really good things that we sort of learned about, uh, saw materialize in the late stages of the last expansion is that when the labor market does get tight, we don't see spiraling inflation as some people have feared. We see businesses invest in expanding the workforce, skills training, looking at potential employees um, they may not have previously considered. For example, people who had been in prison. How much does that experience help then inform policy now in really sort of rethinking how strong the economy can get before the Fed or before policymakers tap the brakes? I think it's extraordinarily important, really in two ways. One, the business community simply hadn't had a seat at the table for many of these discussions. And very often people who have been very active in uh, criminal justice policy uh, just don't have experience in the business community and understand their needs. So having the business uh, community uh, step up in that way uh, and be involved in the policy process directly has been critically important in, in delivering better policy. The other factor is it, it's simply working. When we find businesses who adopt a model where you are selective about who you hire, find the people who are ready for employment, and then critically provide them tools to stay employed. That might mean uh, access to housing or transportation. Uh, you get not just an employee, you actually get an extraordinarily good employee. You were recently elected to the membership in the Council on Criminal Justice in recognition for the work you've done on this. How do you think policy is developing in this way? Is there any an optimism going forward, even if we, some like pay service, what Trump has achieved in terms of prison focus and policy, and how will it, will it develop post-November, do you think? There's a tremendous amount of energy around this. I, I frankly was pessimistic when unemployment rates went soaring that uh, this would get sidelined, but uh, I'm gratified it has not. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the president uh, has been very active in this. Uh, the passage of the First Step Act, which governed outcomes for federal prisoners. Now, federal prisoners are only 7 or 8% of the prison population, but that was extraordinarily important on a symbolic uh, basis. Now it's going at the state and local level. Most of this legislation is at the state level. And I'm seeing a lot of reform movements that are involving business-friendly reforms. So I think that's going to have a positive impact. And so then, Jeff, with regards to the current recession we're in and the current downturn in the labor market, some of the gains that we have been making with regards uh, to getting some of those types of people back into the workforce, um, have those gains sort of been interrupted? Uh, they have uh, to some degree, but there's a new angle. Um, I, I hate to use that, that word, but, but there's a new element here that really hadn't been as much part of the discussion. And that's if you look at people with felony convictions in the United States, there are 19 million of them. So it's an enormous population that is underemployed and, and really could contribute to the economy. It also has distinctive characteristics. And one of the tragedies of our, our nation right now is that one in three black men in America has a felony conviction. So that's a tremendous obstacle to economic opportunity. So we can't hope to live up to our aspiration to be the land of opportunity for all until we offer second chance, uh, second chance employment. Um, so that's helping drive the initiative uh, uh, right now. And I think that's a big plus. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Meanwhile, the picture being painted in Europe is not a pretty one. On the health front, while France is reporting the highest number of daily reported coronavirus cases since the end of the lockdown back in May, more than 10,000 a day. One of those diagnosed was the country's own finance minister. On the economic front, while in the UK, the Bank of England gave its clearest signal yet that it may consider cutting interest rates below zero for the first time in its history. That's as the economy faces headwinds from a surge in infections itself. And then, of course, there we say it, the dreaded word no one wants to hear, least of all me, Brexit. Four years we've been talking about it and it's back. And by tearing up sections of the Brexit deal he secured less than a year ago, Boris Johnson has moved Britain several steps closer to a chaotic and bitter separation from the European Union. We spoke about all of this with Frederick Ducrose. Now, he is a strategist at Pictet Wealth Management and started by talking about the Eurozone inflation, or indeed the lack thereof of inflation. How hard is it to reinflate the economy? But the first thing we need to remind us is that the, the issue of low inflation dates way back uh, right. before the crisis. And what we've seen has mostly amplified the trend that we've seen before, the issue that the ECB has been facing, and to some extent as well, I mean, of course, in Japan, even in the U.S., and core PC in the U.S. has been running far below levels that should be consistent with what the, the Fed has done in the U.S. as well. So this is uh, amplified that we've seen before by the crisis, and also because of a noise and uh, temporary factors that we need to try and filter out. We have a G, uh, um, GAT cut in Germany, this is a temporary uh, period that will be reversed next year. We have a number of uh, one-off uh, factors that Christine Lagarde, actually the president of the EU, discussed last week. But even then, even when you smooth out the noise and you look at the underlying trend in consumer prices, it's going down. Right. It's going down, Frederick, but I'm curious because I feel like some of the language that we've heard uh, from Lagarde and to a certain effect, uh, even from Draghi, uh, prior to her, there was there seemed to be a little bit more language around the idea that they could meet that inflation target. That inflation was coming down the pipe, but I'm just not quite sure why they don't seem to, uh, I guess, dial back some of that rhetoric a little bit. Absolutely right. And it's uh, all the more uh, stunning when you see what's happening with the currency. Currency appreciation has been a drag on inflation as well. Uh, about also, I mean, we've seen... Uh, wages coming down in the outlook, broader outlook for the European economy is not yet uh, strong enough for the ECB to sound confident about that. One factor, and I think that this is the one actually, is fiscal policy. And this was mentioned by the chief economist, by the president of the ECB, as uh, the most important factor behind actually an upgrade in the inflation outlook by 2022. So the hope really, and it's a hope, it's not a strategy, is that the ECB finally can rely on fiscal policy to take over and to boost inflation and wage growth, lowering unemployment over the coming years. I mean, it's very hard, of course, for 
not only Madame Lagarde, but also Philip Lane, the ECB uh, economist, who's been finally sort of saying, you know, actually the euro does matter to us in terms of the currency where it's currently trading. It does have some sort of bearing on where we set our policy. And meanwhile, the US is reflating like mad. It's very hard for Europe to really catch up in that respect. How hard also is it not only fighting central bank versus central bank, but political institution versus political institution. Europe is still being hindered to some extent by what's happening with Brexit. It, does it? Does it have much bearing in terms of what the ECB has to do going forward? Of course. Of course it does. And in fairness to them, there's little they can do about the currency. There's even less they can do about Brexit, uh, in uh, Frankfurt at least. So there's uh, as much as they can do in terms of uh, providing enough support ex ante uh, for the, the recovery to continue. But again, uh, the big difference today, including uh, relative to the UK, is fiscal policy, is the outlook and the hope that fiscal integration, that this EU recovery fund, uh, almost 1 trillion euros altogether to support the recovery, will finally have an impact. Right. And uh, I do expect the ECB to do this again, but I think they hope that it will be their last move. I want to pick up on something that you just talked about, which is the um, the fiscal integration. And that really does seem to be the difference between this crisis and the last crisis, the willingness to pool resources, to engage in more countercyclical fiscal policy. Do you expect that this vehicle will be a one-off or will uh, fiscal expansion to counteract downturns now become a more permanent part of the euro area uh, policy arsenal? No, I think there is no turning back from this commitment that the EU just made. Uh, there will be issues, there will be, there will be a bumpy road in terms of implementing the recovery fund. It will be perhaps incomplete, but there is no turning back from this. And uh, actually, the EU will become one of the largest, if not the largest, issuer of uh, such bonds in the market. Think of green bonds, for instance. 30% uh, of this 70 uh, 750 billion uh, EU plan will be issued through green bonds and this will in itself create a market and, and demand also for investors to buy it. So I think from a market perspective, from a macro perspective and of course from a political perspective, this has been a major taboo that was broken and there is no turning back on this. All right. So, Frederick, maybe you could bring this back uh, to Brexit and uh, the, the, the prospect here that a lot of investors have uh, for either a hard Brexit, a delayed Brexit, or who knows, maybe maybe they just uh, reverse course and decide to stay uh, with the EU, though that'll never happen. I'm curious, Joe, just from an economic perspective here, uh, I mean, is there any sort of lasting damage that you would sort of, uh, I guess, guard against or, or be on watch for uh, should this not sort itself out in some sort of orderly fashion? Look, I'll tell you, uh, we're all tired, tired of covering Brexit, tired of uh, thinking about the consequences. And I think of all my colleagues and friends and, 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 and everyone out there, I think the time wasted and the energy is already having a lasting impact. Clearly, the potential, uh, gross potential of the UK has been uh, damaged already. And the hope is that we find a deal by the end of this year that at least mitigates the uh, upcoming damage in terms of, of tariffs and frictions. Uh, the good news I see is that the uh, end-of-year deadline is a hard one. And so what we've seen recently, the political tensions, the uh, heated rhetoric on both sides, is actually good news because we need to get there for those two parts to get back to the table and make concessions. And as I said before, there is room for concession. And we still expect a, a limited deal to be reached by the end of the year. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This week, we also saw a flurry of political, financial, journalistic energy put into the future of TikTok. Now, it's the bigger picture that we really want to get to, of course, and what it means for the tech cold war between the U.S. and China. The Trump administration's relentless focus on Chinese companies and their ties to U.S. firms will remain a pillar of President Trump's re-election campaign. U.S. officials say there's a potential security threat if the data that TikTok collects is used by the Chinese government. So they're trying to ring-fence that data via the Oracle deal. And, well, they're meanwhile stopping new downloads of the app from this Sunday. But it's not just TikTok in the U.S.'s sites. Tencent also coming under pressure with bans planned for WeChat and CFIUS. Now, remember, that's a committee on foreign investment in the U.S. It's raising concerns over Tencent's ties with gaming companies as well. All the while, China itself emphasizing its right to also approve or block the deal being made to carve out TikTok's U.S. operations. So we first got some perspective with Paul Halpern. He was formerly a director of CFIUS at the Department of Defense and now works at the firm he founded, Halpern Analytics. We started by asking Paul what sort of questions he would be asking about this deal if he was still directing CFIUS. Well, the, analytically, they fall into two categories. Uh, number one, what are the vulnerabilities of the assets that are either being acquired or, in this case, in some sense, unwound or divested? And then what are the threats uh, if, in this case, they're not divested? So in the broadest sense, that's what's involved. And, you know, when you talked earlier about the geopolitical war just warming up. In terms of of a technology war, this has been going on for years between Mm -hmm. the U.S. and China, but it's now been expanded beyond technology and critical infrastructure and and the other of the big three, which is proximity of anything that Chinese buy near uh, sensitive military facilities, finally into sensitive personal information. And there, there are several types of this information. But generally speaking, uh, what CFIUS has increasingly been concerned about uh, are things that either the Chinese with their mega databases uh, assisted by artificial intelligence uh, could find, which could be um, reasons for being able to blackmail somebody or Hmm. perhaps uh, discover that they are... uh, anti-American and might be uh, available uh, to be recruited as a spy. So that's that's one kind of, of uh, concern. A second one 
uh, of course, is in the case of uh, social media, uh, the censoring of information uh, to put the U.S. in a bad light. Um, and that, of course, has to do with the, uh, the kinds of, of, of monitoring that, that our own social media has found itself in the, in the crosshairs about, about what do you censor mm. and, and what do you allow to go out um, into yeah. the, uh, the public space. Cool. So uh, basically, in, in this particular case, it's both the, uh, the effect of uh, the Chinese perhaps um, having an impact on how the U.S. is perceived and how China is perceived, but even more importantly, uh, protecting against uh, the, the kinds of information that would make someone vulnerable. And that, of course, includes uh, military workers who, in the case of DOD, are not allowed to put this on their military uh, mobile phones. But I don't think yet anything that says they can't sneak around and, mm -hmm. and, and, and put it on their individual uh, cell phones if they have them. And that could give away where they are located and therefore what they're being trained to do. So, Paul, this is where the nervousness comes in. This is what CFIUS is trying to fight. From, it's very hard to sort of peel away all the levels of the onion this, that we're seeing at the moment in terms of what this Oracle deal really looks like, who's involved. But from what you've read thus far, do you think that the data is being protected enough? Do you think that this is some way, this would ease CFIUS's concerns in this way? I don't think what we read uh, either in the paper or in public statements uh, clarifies that even the evolution of the deal so far uh, goes far enough. So I would raise a, a couple of issues. Uh, the, the, the statement that the deal has evolved from the Oracle being a strategic minority partner to a mega deal in which the 40% interest of American uh, investors would be uh, enhanced over a tipping point uh, to a majority U.S. interest by Oracle's involvement and uh, Walmart's and perhaps others, as if that in and of itself uh, and a U.S. location for operations uh, and a third party handling the U.S. operations would be sufficient. Uh, and I don't think uh, that CFIUS will find it sufficient. So there's a second layer that's been leaked out talking about um, whoever, uh, I guess in the case it would be Oracle, that would um, get access to uh, source code um, from um, TikTok, as well as auditing of data to make sure uh, that it's not going to any place it shouldn't go to. Uh, those are all interesting things, but if um, ByteDance, given the laws in China, which are such that uh, the government can lean on any company. If, if ByteDance has even a minority stake mm. and is on a board of directors or is involved in, in any way that does not absolutely firewall it from having any access or influence over the data, then it doesn't go far enough. And that is yeah. to, to satisfy um, CFIUS, I suspect. Now, you know, CFIUS could be overruled, but I suspect that 
uh, knowing how my former colleagues operate and how into the nitty gritty details they get. And the devil is in the details. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that the, the counter draft that Sifi has proposed Wednesday night ran to 20 pages. That's a good sign. Uh, but if there's not a board of directors, and even if there is, the big question is, what are the means that are be take, being taken to totally ice out the Chinese from having any influence? And if there is an informal board, because, you know, if there's, there's no IPO for a year, then you know, they're going to have to create an artificial board. And then the question is, what access, what uh, are, are ByteDance representatives going to have on that board? So there's governance involved here, mm, not yeah. just um, things that that monitor the data, because yeah. it, you're, you're, the big fear that, that CFIUS has in, in many Chinese deals is we're not concerned with catching the Chinese after the fact. If it's really sensitive stuff, whether it's crypto. Uh, critical technology, critical infrastructure, or this yeah. kind of stuff, you want to catch them before they steal it, not after. Then we continued our conversation about TikTok and WeChat with David Hankey. He is Arendt Fox partner. Dave is leading national security and public policy lawyer for domestic and foreign companies. And we started by asking him if he thought we were in a new era of heightened scrutiny for international deals. I think the answer is probably yes. You know, starting about uh, four years ago, CFIUS began to take a, a much more intense interest in investments involving Chinese entities. And about two years ago, of course, uh, the Congress, when I, where I was working as a Senate staffer at the time, enacted legislation that modernized and expanded the jurisdiction of CFIUS just about two years ago exactly. And one of the things that that legislation did was it also beefed up the resources and the personnel that, that CFIUS uh, has at its disposal. So, you know, back in the day, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there were only about four people <clears throat> or so at uh, Treasury, which carries CFIUS. And these days, thanks to this legislation and thanks to the, uh, the funding from Congress, there now are upwards of 50 um, staffers just at Treasury alone. Other agencies like the Pentagon, uh, the Justice Department, Homeland Security, Commerce have also beefed up their teams. So what this means, practically speaking, is that now there are people whose full-time jobs um, are in fact going out and scouring the landscape hmm. and looking for transactions <clears throat> involving Chinese entities that were never filed for CFIUS to review. And so, that includes what's happening, I think, today. Yeah, and I'm curious, though, about the evolution. I mean, I remember years ago when we talk about CFIUS and the deals that they were uh, recommending either for or against, it, it, it was pretty straightforward. You know, there was that, that whole issue a few years ago when, uh, you know, some Chinese company wanted to build a, a wind farm next to a Navy base. But now you're talking about data uh, that kind of just goes back and forth across the world. And I'm wondering whether CFIUS considers or can consider a way where you can effectively wall off that data within our own country and a way to do that where it's effective. CFIUS says uh, look at innovative ways to address these concerns. They call them uh, mitigation measures. Usually they're agreed to uh, in a document, a national security agreement between the government and the transaction parties. And in the modern era, of course, uh, big data is a reality. This is, uh, this is something that is a feature of many transactions. The, uh, the challenge with some of these deals that we're seeing today is that uh, the data, um, in some cases, is very much intertwined with, uh, with what's going on within the company. So even setting up certain firewalls can be very, very technically challenging in terms of 
pulling off that data and bringing in outside companies. But it is something that is that is that they strive to do. A lot of agencies that are members of CFIUS try to find ways to salvage these deals, not to blow them up in terms of uh, what, what CFIUS can do. And uh, walling off the data is, is one way they can do that. Yeah, otherwise, you know, you have to feel for all the Gen Zers who are out there trying to busy play Fortnite and suddenly are going to be unable to in some way, shape or form. And I'm interested in the precedent set here and how often in that precedent we see presidents weigh in. I mean, have you got a sense, David, on how regularly it feels now suddenly with Trump very much wading into the U.S.-China relationship? But has this happened often before with Sifius getting involved at the president's behest or, or seemingly at it? No, typically the process works in reverse, where we have uh, a team of professional staffers at the various agencies who conduct a rigorous, objective analysis of the national security risks that underlie each of these transactions as they get reviewed by CFIUS. And then the agencies that are part of, part of CFIUS reach a consensus, and then they make a recommendation as, as a team to the White House. Uh, the White House typically does not get involved, especially in such a public way. There, there are many features of this um, for example, the TikTok situation that are virtually unprecedented. It's very uncommon for, um, for presidents to be engaging so publicly and opining and providing information about uh, the status of a review right. and, and what, what he thinks should happen. So playing out so publicly is, uh, is a very unique uh, piece of what we're seeing today. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.